0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, a host of the Public Policy Channel. And today, Joanne Myrowitz joins us to talk about her new book, A War on Global Poverty, The Lost Promise of Redistribution and the Rise of Microcredit, new from Princeton University Press. Uh, Joanne, if you would, start us off by telling just a little bit about yourself and how it is you came to write this book. Uh, well, hello, Stephen, and thank you for having me.
1: Uh, I'm a historian of the United States, the 20th century U.S., uh, and most of my research has been in the fields of gender and sexuality, and I teach at Yale University. So um, this book took me a little bit farther afield from some of my earlier work, which was uh, my first book, Women Adrift, was on a group of working women in the early 20th century uh, in Chicago, and my second book was on the history of transsexuality and how, how definitions of sex and gender changed over the course of the 20th century. Uh, But This new book, um, which is a history of U.S. involvement in campaigns against global poverty and how they increasingly came to focus on women, took me a little bit farther afield. It it builds on my earlier work on women and gender, uh, but it was also a departure for me because it took me into foreign relations and economic development and required learning some new literature and thinking on a more global scale. So that's the sort of background to the, how my, scholarly, my career took me to this book, but this particular project, I came to it from a couple different directions. Uh, one of them is more personal and one more scholarly or intellectual. So the more personal story is that my sister was doing research in Rwanda, and I went to visit her there, and we went together to Ethiopia as tourists, and when we were traveling there, I kept seeing signs of economic development and anti-poverty efforts. And I mean literal signs, some of them rusting signs, left leftover from the 1980s famine. Uh, there were signs for uh, USAID, United States Agency for International Development, for a land reclamation project. There was a water tank donated by a Scandinavian Lutheran church. There were signs marking offices for big NGOs like Save the Children or Doctors Without Borders. And some of the signs advertised projects for women. So I knew, you know, that there had been famines in Ethiopia in the 70s and 80s. um, And I knew that there had been economic development there. But I started wondering, when did we get these projects for women, Uh, especially economic projects, not projects that focused on health or nutrition or birth control? So I came back home and I went to the USAID website and I searched for gender. And back then, it's no longer there, there was a full page on gender stories. They now have other pages on, on gender empowerment, women's empowerment. But there was a page on gender stories that went from A to Z, from Afghanistan to Zambia. And each country was a hyperlink that led to success stories about what USAID had done for women in those countries. And somewhere on the site, there was a one-sentence history uh, that said the interest in gender had started in 1973 with the Percy Amendment. So the Percy Amendment uh, was an amendment to the U.S. Foreign Aid Act passed in 73 that mandated that U.S. foreign aid funds include women in economic development projects. So that sentence led me to my research. How and why did we get the Percy Amendment? And that uh, that was a sort of entering wedge, and then it turned into a much bigger project.
0: So that's perfect. So, so why don't why don't we use that as as maybe sort of the the, the fulcrum or the turning point? The way that uh, you lay out the book is is put crudely. We've got sort of three big periods, right? As we're thinking about. Uh, global poverty. The first is sort of large-scale public development projects. On the one hand, you've got things like dams and water. On the other is the idea that that economic growth itself will lift people in less developed countries out of poverty. The second phase is this turn toward uh, smaller-scale projects, business development project aimed principally or increasingly at women via non-governmental organizations. And then where you conclude your narrow narrative is the emergence and arguably dominance of microcredit schemes, right? Small loans increasingly undertaken by private for-profit actors uh, targeting women at the household level. So what we go back to that first period. What should we know about... Uh, uh, thinking before the, the Percy Amendment of 73 and then and sort of where we go in that story afterwards.
1: So in the earlier period, as you say, there was a field of economic development um, and it focused mostly on what were known as modernization projects, uh, focusing heavily on building infrastructure. And the assumption there uh, was that economic development at the national level, national economic growth, uh, gross domestic product, would trickle down and eventually help end poverty. And what people in the 1970s, economic development experts, started saying was that that wasn't happening. They did studies, and there could be economic growth, but it didn't necessarily help what they called the poorest of the poor. The economic development field moved, um, I argue, to the left in the 1970s. It was pushed by the social movements of the 1960s, by African socialism, by religious humanists. And they began to argue that economic growth was not the measure of success, national economic growth, that you had to actually focus on the poorest of the poor, on poor people, if you wanted to end poverty. And so that was a major shift in the 1970s. um, And it was also involved a widening of the circles of who were the development experts. Um, So it became the development experts were moved to the left and also to the south, to the global south, bringing in more economists and other policymakers and activists from the global south. So in that earlier period, we had a major shift in the understanding of what economic development was.
0: So talk uh, and, and, you know, part of this shift is accounted for by the increasing role of women themselves in these processes. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the key institutions or the key players?
1: So um, the women in development movement emerged in the 1970s, and it emerged in part because most, most of the development field didn't pay any attention to women. It paid attention to women sometimes as child rearers, sometimes as child bearers, um, as women who should be, in, you know, uh, have fewer children, but it really didn't pay much attention to women's economic activities. And so a group of women in the early 1970s started converging and suggesting that economic development programs had actually harmed women, had actually undermined their traditional status by making all of the training and all of the jobs that were in these economic development programs go to men. One of the key players here was a woman and Danish economist named Esther Basserup, who wrote a book, A Woman's Role in Economic Development, that became a kind of bible became the original original foundational document for this women in development movement uh, but she wasn't the only one and she was synthesizing what other people from around the globe had already been saying and so this women in development movement emerged in the early 1970s and was really pushed to the forefront in 1975 at the united nations uh, international women's year conference held in mexico City where a group of uh, large groups of women came together and there was a seminar beforehand and talks during the conference about uh, women in economic development. So this became a movement of mostly women who were pushing to include women not as mothers but as economic actors in economic development programs. And this was an international movement from the start. by the end of the 1970s, it had worked its way into government agencies, international organizations, foundations, NGOs, universities, um, the United Nations, the World Bank, USAID, the Peace Corps, the Ford Foundation. They all started women in development programs and offices
0: in the 1970s. And where does that, so, so I mean, actually, the question I want to ask is, is why? I mean, <laughs> yes. do we, how, how do we get there? So the reason why, I mean, it's
1: complicated, but part of it has to do with the rise of feminism in the 1970s. So there's a large global feminist movement that's emerging, and the people who are interested in economic development are bringing their feminist activism into into economic development. But they aren't quite calling themselves feminists because they didn't think it would fly. So they're kind of going under the radar as sort of stealth feminists entering into these agencies and organizations and bringing some of the calls for women's equity that were out there all over the world. But it's also emerged partly because of this interest in on-the-ground poverty. So if economic development had continued to focus on airports and dams and ports and bridges, you wouldn't be thinking so much about women. But when economic development turns away and turns toward looking at the poorest of the poor, it was hard not to see women who were clearly among the poorest of the poor. Uh, And I would say another factor has to do with a growing concern with the informal economy, which was a term that was uh, popularized in the 1970s. So this interest in economic activity that was not exactly, not captured in the national statistics in this sort of small entrepreneurial kinds of work like street vending or, or, or peeling potatoes at home and selling them. So women were often clearly when people started to study the informal economy, they couldn't help but see that it was women who were often running the smallest businesses there. So for all these reasons, uh, these, came, these reasons converged in this international women and in development movement that gained increasing clout through the 1970s.
0: And and you know some of this is is a, a an increasing argument that uh, women are better investments than men are. Yes.
1: Yeah, that was a really interesting thing that that I came across in my research. I wasn't really expecting to find that. So um, early on, of course, almost all of these programs focused on men. But as they started to focus on women, the first arguments that were made were that women deserved access to them, that if you're creating jobs or you're doing training for men, women should have access too. So it was simply a question of access or of equity or also the notion that women would contribute to economic growth, that if you uh, leave out half the population, you're losing half the economic growth. And so, they, But the argument shifted over the course of the 70s and into the 1980s, and it began to focus more and more on women and arguing that it wasn't just that women needed more access, but that women were in some sense more deserving than men, that women were better investments, that they were more responsible and hardworking, that they were, once we get microcredit, more likely to repay their loans, that they were more concerned with family and children, that they were less likely to spend their earnings on alcohol, sex, and gambling. So this is a really big change in the stories told about gender here from the 50s and 60s when the programs focused mostly on men and training men and to the 1980s and after where women are seen, are increasingly seen as more deserving than men
0: and men are kind of written off It becomes this i mean this is outside the four corners of of this particular project for you but i mean there's, there's there's for me these fascinating sort of echoes of of uh the ways in which in various periods in u.s history we have uh a privileged motherhood right a particular kind of virtue that's associated with women a particular kind of uh moral rectitude that women have that men don't is that sort of ring any bells for you or am I reaching beyond what makes sense
1: No I think you're right I think there's you know that there's definitely a longer thread of understanding women as particularly concerned with children and being more nurturant and therefore being people who are um you know uh, uh, the focus of certain kinds of change but what's different here is that the focus is on their economic activities so it's not saying um that we should um, uh, train women as mothers or that we should respect women as mothers, although it was certainly also, I was in favor of that, but it was, um, it was saying that women are better economic actors than men. So it's a little bit different from what you find earlier in this sort of maternalist vision,
0: although it's still maternalist in its own way. But in some ways lays lays the framework for, both the arguments for and the structures of of microcredit. so tell us tell us what are microcredit programs and and how do they they rise to prominence?
1: So microcredit programs are um, uh, programs that provide tiny loans to poor people, uh, mostly in the global south, though not entirely. Um, and uh, they're intended to create entrepreneurs to give tiny loans uh, often to women. Uh, give tiny loans to women to help them start or develop businesses. And they take out one loan and then they repay it and then they get another loan and then they repay it. And the idea is that by giving women access to credit, they'd be able to develop their own businesses. So that's microcredit, uh, in a nutshell. And it emerged, um, the interest in credit really had been there all along. Farmers had always, um, in economic development programs, farmers, male farmers had often gotten credit to buy seeds and fertilizers, and then they'd repay the loans uh, when their harvest came in. Uh, And credit became increasingly part of economic development programs in the 1970s, and especially credit for women. And again, the argument started out as one of access. If men have access to credit, if wealthier people have access to credit, so should poor women. Uh, But increasingly, it turned to uh, more and more the programs went to women, and again, for the reasons I stated before, that they were seen as better investments, uh, and also because they were running some of the smallest businesses in the informal economy. The microcredit movement uh, came out of Latin America and South Asia, um, and it was particularly promoted um, by uh, the, the sort of biggest name in the field, quickly became Muhammad Yunus, a Bangladeshi economist who started the Grameen Bank and was this brilliant ambassador who sold his program all and still is selling his programs all over the world. And so he managed to create microcredit uh, programs in Bangladesh that he scaled up very quickly, and soon his program uh, a kind of model for microcredit programs in various parts of the world. Uh, And he eventually, in 2006, won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for his work.
0: So as you observe, the the microcredit movement, if we can call it that, gains power as the the debt crisis is hitting in precisely some of the places where these programs are expanding. And, And you, in fact, go so far as to say that microcredit, quote, fit the neoliberal moment, end quote. Can you you walk us through a little bit about what you mean there?
1: Yeah. um, So in the 1970s, there were some more radical proposals for redistributing wealth. The anti-poverty programs of the 1980s talked more about redistribution, uh, redistribution between nations, between from wealthier nations to poorer nations, and redistribution within nations. Microcredit was uh, uh, retreated from redistribution uh, and retreated from the more radical proposals. It was instead a, a privatized, market-oriented business development. That if you give someone a loan and they have to pay it back, that that sort of more that 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 cre- creates fiscal dis- discipline and 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 business acumen. And so um, the microcredit movement was a was a a cheap way in fact, because the loans are paid back, to suggest that you are helping people out of poverty. Uh, In fact, microcredit um, has not ended poverty, although sometimes the loans can be useful to women. But even the most mainstream economists today are saying that microcredit has not and will not actually end poverty. Uh, It became a kind of cheaper version, a kind of easier version to be addressing both poverty and women. It sustained the interest in poverty and women in a more conservative era in the more conservative
0: 1980s, so let let's talk a little bit about about what we now know in retrospect about about the uh, the failures of of microcredit and the ways in which perhaps the risk associated with them for certain kinds of, of women and families and communities can be greater than the payoffs. what are What are some of the problems with what we now know about the ways in which microcredit programs have played out?
1: Well, you know, microcredit um, can be helpful in terms of if you've ever uh, had a credit card, you know that it can be useful to have credit. You I know, mean, it can tide you over uh, when there's a crisis. It can be useful to not have to dole out cash uh, immediately. But it also, um, If, you know, a tiny loan is not going to lift anybody out of poverty, most people aren't entrepreneurs. Most people aren't going to develop businesses. Many people don't want to develop businesses, and many women who were mothers and taking care of their children didn't need to add a business onto whatever they were already doing in terms of their production and their own labor. And also, a number of people went deeper into debt with microcredit. They started borrowing from multiple microcredit uh, lenders. They started sort of spiraling into debt. Uh, Their businesses did not – these are tiny businesses. They don't necessarily make big profits. Sometimes they can't pay back the loans. And they would be borrowing and sort of spiraling down into deeper and deeper debt. So microcredit did help some people, and some people did develop bigger businesses – but a lot of people didn't. A lot of these tiny businesses fail. They aren't sustainable. The market gets saturated with the tiny businesses. Um, they, they're, um, people, people lose their businesses. People spiral into debt. It wasn't good for everybody. It isn't good for everybody. Um, and it doesn't always help. And even when it is good, it's only a tiny proportion of people who become what we would think of as successful entrepreneurs from getting these tiny loans.
0: And as you observe when we're talking about people who are living very precarious economic lives their most immediate need is resources for consumption not investment right
1: right and sometimes they end up spending the loans for consumption instead of investment because they have no other choice yep.
0: um so so as we work our way toward concluding our conversation what what's what 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 are the pieces of the story that you feel that we haven't touched on that would be important for listeners to to be aware of Uh, before they rush off and buy the book and read this history in much greater detail?
1: Um, So um, I'll tell you about one of the surprises that that came to me as I was writing the book. And and that is that um, I'm a U.S. historian, and I thought I was writing a history about the United States. But as the more I did research, um, it became clear to me, that the book wasn't really about how the U.S. exported its own ideas about development to the global south. Uh, the more I researched, the more international the book became. And so even though the U.S. Um, was and is a superpower, uh, it was not at the forefront of the new ideas about economic development. And I encountered a number of people from outside the U.S. who had outsized influence on U.S. policies and programs. And so this book became, in some sense, a book about these people who were Um, who were influencers, Um, not in the way we use the term influencers today as people who sell products, but people, the type of influencer who sells ideas and policies. So they were ambassadors of sorts who knew how to sell their programs in the U.S., and finding them helped me de-center the U.S. in in my story. So uh, people like a Pakistani development economist, Mahfubal Haq, was deeply influential, in turning U.S. development experts away from infrastructure and toward addressing poverty. And the Danish economist Esther Basarup and the Indian lawyer and activist Ila Bhatt helped shape the women in development movement. And Muhammad Yunus, who I've already mentioned, the Bangladeshi economist, was instrumental in making microcredit a worldwide phenomenon. So uh, the book became much more about some of these international actors uh, who had influence uh, in, the, in the world as a whole and also within the U.S. Uh, you know and I they, guess one other oh, sorry, thing that I would, or that one other thing that I'd like to say is that um, it's very easy to criticize economic development programs, and many of the histories of economic development do that. Programs often fail; they don't do what they're supposed to do. Uh, they have unexpected consequences. They're based on national rivalries and national self-interest as well as on humanitarian and other goals. But I didn't want the book. Um, to come off as a nihilist. And I want us to remember that we should be attempting to redistribute wealth, that we should be working for gender equality, that we should be working to end poverty and its material deprivations. So I wanted us, um, I wanted readers to think about some of the more radical aspirations, more redistributive aspirations of the 1970s and to remember them. So I didn't want to just Uh, uh, end the book as sort of, well, microcredit didn't end poverty. Um, There are things that we should be remembering from these stories. Um, And one of the things um, that we might remember is the calls in the late 1970s for an international tax on, say, arms sales or minerals extracted from the ocean floor, from international travel. There were proposals for this kind of international tax that would be used for, the funds brought in from it would be used for anti-poverty programs across the globe. Um so these are the kinds of proposals that I'm hoping readers will remember as we imagine for our own day what it might take to have both gender equality and a just redistribution of global
0: wealth. You've been listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network and we have been speaking with Joanne Meyerwitz about her new book A Global War Excuse me, a war on global poverty. The Lost Promise of Redistribution and the Rise of Microcredit from Princeton University Press. Joanne, thank you so much for your time today. Much appreciated.
1: Thank you, Stephen.